As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show Weekend Review. Today we look back on a weekend where Carlo Ancelotti decided to chop and change his formation like a Picasso painting as Barcelona made some fine art at the Bernabeu, where Lazio were pitiful in an eternal city full of delighted Roma fans, where Monaco took trois from PSG, where Liverpool set up an FA Cup tie with City, and where Argentina was the place to be. If you like to see literal live grenades going off on the field, yes, seriously. Lee. My name is Ryan Bailey. Joining me today is a man who'd never play Luka Modric as a false nine. Is that right, Taylor Rockwell? I mean, it is now. I might have before, but not after this weekend. That was uh, that was not great. I think Ancelotti was saying, oh, but that's not even what we were doing. It was a different thing. It sure looked like that. Uh, and it sure looked like Real Madrid were not prepared to play that style. Yeah. Um, if you're going to experiment with things, maybe yeah. don't do it in that circumstance, Carlo. We'll get to that a bit later, though, won't we, Taylor? We're going to talk about the Classico and many yes, other rivalries from this weekend. Joining us here to do that is a man who I hope can explain to me why neither team wore their first choice kits in the Classico. <laughs> Graham Rutherford, half at it. Uh, capitalism, I guess, <laughs> is the answer to that. It, 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 it was uh, annoying. I, I was not a fan of it. I do like special edition kits, unless you're Napoli. Stop doing those. They're not good. Uh, but the Real Madrid one just wasn't special enough to justify dumping the the colour scheme, the famous white, and then obviously the Barcelona colours, the Blaugrana, Blaugrana can't say that, um, for such an iconic match. Yeah, I wasn't a fan. I then checked the price of those shirts today. So uh, one of the Real Madrid shirts is $150. And one, I don't know if anyone saw the, the, the warm-up jackets they wore when they, wo- they walked out, Real Madrid's. Just a just a standard kind of running jacket, I, w- I would call it, like a very thin kind of plasticky jacket, over six hundred dollars. No, um, <laughs> for a windbreaker. I can't believe that. Like, yeah, for a windbreaker, that's the word. Yeah, for a windbreaker. What's going on? I mean, I guess they've got to sign Haaland and Mbappe somehow, but still. <laughs> Is this um? Yeah, it's paying for the stadium, I assume, Graham. Is this? 
are these shirts they wore, are they special edition just for 4-0 beatdowns against fierce rivals, or will they wear it at another point, do we think? <laughs> well, I don't think they're ever going to wear it again. I did think that when it was 4-0, was they're, they're probably not going to ship many of these shirts, actually, now. Oh yeah. dear, oh dear. Well, yeah, more Classico talk in a moment, but for now we're rounding out our pack as always with a man who has plenty of positive things to say about Charlotte FC today and will surely go back on his egregious pre-season MLS predictions, Joe Larry, Hello. I mean, it's not looking very good at this point, Ryan, not because of FC Cincinnati, who continue to be pretty darn decent. They picked up another win this weekend, as did Charlotte, who got their first win. Mm. But I think because of Inter-Miami, who are the early frontrunner, in my view, for, if not the wooden spoon, certainly the bottom of the Eastern Conference, Charlotte, Charlotte are looking okay, Ryan. They are, they are. Maybe Inter-Miami should have some more athletic features about them. Just saying, Joe, <laughs> just saying. I appreciate you just I'm, really going down this path, Ryan, and never yeah. wavering from it. Ryan, I'm also pretty confident that Inter-Miami have had more than a couple articles written about them uh, over the couple seasons. You are quite right. You're being quite fair. <laughs> I'm being a little bit silly. I'll tell you why I'm being silly, Taylor Rockwell. I'm feeling like a, a Mack truck hit me this morning. I ran a marathon yesterday. Very silly why? thing A what? <laughs> a what? What'd you run? What's that now? I've never heard of those things before. Excellent reference, Taylor. I like that. Um, <laughs> I, I'll tell you how badly it went. It, I, I went. I went very slowly. There was a point where I stopped for a bathroom break, and it was like at the top of a hill, like between Hollywood Boulevard and Sunset Boulevard. I was in Los Angeles. Uh, I carry on after the bathroom break, and I realize I've dropped my car key. And I, by this point, I'm at the bottom of the hill. Oh, so no. I'm like, it's in the bathroom store, in the porta potty. So I have to run back up the hill. Takes me a long time. Get there, wait for the, por- the stall that I was in, open it up, think is there is there a moment where i have to plunge my hand into this thing to try and find my key and then i realized it was still in my shorts all along (laughs) yeah excellent so you ran more than a marathon technically i did and backwards up a hill i didn't need to run up yeah so that's how well it went do you get extra points for that or (laughs) yeah they gave me two medals joe they gave me two medals at the end it was great um and by the way i did meet um tss listener robert cordova hello robert thank you for meeting me at the finish line robert runs a way way quicker marathon than i do and it was very nice to see him at the finish line. Um, did you go um, to the LAFC game, Ryan, last night? Oh, that's something I did too. Instead of recovering from my marathon, Graham, I went out to Bank of California yeah. Stadium. Yeah. <laughs> really cool. I, re- I don't know if you got any of you guys have been, but it's a very, very cool experience. Their supporters group, um, they do not stop. They have the drums going the whole time. And, you know, they got little Will Ferrell smiling on his throne, watching over everybody. Wonderful stuff. Just to clarify, like that's not actually Will Ferrell that they have sort of captured. It is like a miniaturized version. Is that that's right? I, I don't know. I've never heard of this before, so yeah, I'm so trying to li- learn. Little Will Ferrell is their mascot who sits on the throne, whereas the <laughs> oh, main wow. Will Ferrell sits elsewhere in the stadium, Jeff. Yeah, that's right. I wow. mean, I'm in favor of Little Will Ferrell being the official <laughs> mascot of LAFC. I like, I like that idea. I'm now picturing like similar to the, the Falcons and the Eagles that fly around stadiums, just like a little miniature Will Ferrell that just runs around and does the same sort of pageantry. I'm into that as well. All right, I, th- I think we just got our script greenlit, Taylor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, supposedly they got Talladega Knights greenlit by just saying Will Ferrell NASCAR. And I feel like, yeah, we could do that. Will Ferrell, tiny flying bird soccer. Let's see what happens. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, why don't we talk about some soccer from Europe? The big one in Spain, uh, Clasico Real Madrid nil, Barcelona 4 in their 282nd meeting. Barcelona started the day 15 points behind. They cut that to 12, of course. Uh, in their last meeting in January, Barcelona were beaten 3-2 in Saudi Arabia. Madrid were on a run of five straight Clasico wins. A run they have ended emphatically. 
Um, Joe, I'll come to you first. This one felt like it could have been 6-0, 7-0, 8-0 potentially. What happened here? Give us an outline of the way this one shaped out. This was a drubbing from Barcelona in this game away to Real Madrid. As far as outlines go, I think it's pretty simple. Barcelona looked organized and and well put together under Xavi. They were moving the ball well. They were moving off the ball well. And we saw a lot of the definable traits of what Xavi has been building in this team since he took over earlier this season. That's the Barcelona half. They looked very, very good. The other half is Carlo Ancelotti's Real Madrid looked worse than I think I've ever seen them in a game. And I'm not trying to be hyperbolic here, but they, they don't have Karim Benzema in this game who's out dealing with an injury. So there's no central attacking focal point for Real Madrid in this game. And you mentioned it in the intro, Ryan, with Luka Modric sort of playing as a false nine. To be honest, guys, that was there at times, but I would be hesitant to even say that was a defining theme of this game just because there weren't any real defining themes for Real Madrid. Yeah, there were little patterns and things, but they weren't normal rotations, certainly, and they didn't look well-drilled. They didn't look well-executed. There was tons of space between their lines that Barcelona exploited over and over again. Their high press was poor and Barcelona could move the ball down the wings and and create 2v1s against Real Madrid's wide midfielders in those spaces. This was, as I said just a moment ago, a total drubbing. Barcelona was the better team and they're proving that this is something real under Xavi right now. I've been slow to come around on this team because of how really mediocre they were under Ronald Koeman and how mediocre they've been for a while now, at least compared to their previous standards. But this was a dominant performance from them. Barcelona are in some sort of revival right now under Xavi. 12 games unbeaten. They're third in La Liga right now, three points behind Sevilla with the game in hand and a matchup against them in the league next. So on form, fellas, I think this is the best team. Barcelona, I should clarify, this is the best team in La Liga right now, hands down. And that certainly played out in this game. Yeah. Go, Taylor. I was just going to say, I I was... I still can't figure out how much of this is just because Karim Benzema wasn't able to go. Sid Lowe Some. in the pre-match talked about how if it had been a a true Classico, a Classico where there was like truly a title on the line, that maybe he would have played this and maybe that would have made the difference. But I, I think one of my major takeaways from this game is is just that Real Madrid cannot like underplay the importance of Karim Benzema. And he is not a player that they can just sort of move on, get rid of, bring in another talent and assume that it will be plug and play because... They missed him a lot in this game. The, like, the way he connects the attack, the way he, I think, helps organize the way they're pressing and the way they're dropping in when they need to defend a little bit deeper. And without him, I agree with Joe, it was just all over the place. And I think that the narrative for me, especially in the first half, was just Madrid quickly but also slowly having to adapt everything they were doing to basically just try to improvise a defense against Real Madrid the the player that I thought most exemplified that uh, would be Pedri for Barcelona that Pedri starts getting a ton of space central so then Madrid have Carvajal cheating inside to try to kind of split the difference but that leaves Ferran Torres out wide wide open a number of times in the first 10 minutes so then Carvajal goes and tries to do with Torres they would have Casemiro slide over now, Casemiro is going to sit on Pedri, and then you can't build through him, but that leaves a huge gap in the middle that Barcelona tried to exploit. So then they had to change their entire shape and get somebody kind of sitting into those those pockets of space. But now you truly are just reacting to what your opponent is doing. And at that point, I think it was already two or three nil. And it really does just kind of go from there into an easy run to the finish line for Barcelona in this game. And I agree. I think it was a statement game for Barcelona on top of that, and especially for Xavi in the videos after words of him in the locker room kind of show the camaraderie that's there the the kind of fighting spirit that he has instilled in that team 
Taylor, a lot of the narrative has centered around Karen Benzema's absence, and I completely yeah. get it, and he was sorely missed here, and he probably did cause this um, shape-shifting of the formation. But how much can we attribute to him? Like, was it his fault that Militao and Alaba were, were dreadful at the back, that, that De Jong had loads of room to push forward, that free headers were available for, for Arujo for his second goal? Like, it seems like there's only a certain extent to which we can attribute his absence. I mean, I think if you have a, a, a system in place or if you if you have a, a delicately balanced ecosystem and then you remove one part from it, other parts have to adjust. Other parts are now doing different things. And I think for Militao, yeah, if you ping it long, you know Kareem Benzema is there and maybe he's going to fight for that 50-50 header, but maybe also just the threat of him and his cleverness and skill on the ball is going to make defenses do something different. And when you don't have him there, you just don't have to worry about him. And when it's Vinny Jr. and Rodrigo and you kind of go physical on them and knock them around a little bit that did seem to knock them off their game literally and figuratively and I think it, it just sort of nullified everything Real Madrid wanted to do and so they just kept giving the ball away kept turning it over and kept sort of ceding control to Barca so maybe it's unfair to say it's just one player and that would have made all the difference but I I came away from this one just really understanding how important Kareem Benzema is to Real Madrid and I think that's yeah. an issue that they will need to deal with if they want to have success after he departs. I think uh, Ferland Mendy as well would have made a would have made a difference. Not as much as as Benzema, obviously, because he's the most important player in that in that team, as we, as we've already covered. But Ferland Mendy would have made a difference against Dembele because about twenty minutes into this match, I realised, oh wait, Nacho is up against <laughs> uh, Usman Dembele. That is a mismatch, mm-hmm. uh, and throughout the match, it, it was a mismatch on the right side. Carvajal. Um, that was also a mismatch. I don't know how you solve that because Carvajal is Real Madrid's first choice right back, but against Ferran Torres, he was getting just smoked time and time again. Within the first few minutes, PK plays a, a ball over the top for Ferran Torres and actually runs out of play that pass, but that that kind of gave us a hint of what was to come from Barcelona, where they were just trying to hit those wide areas through Ferran Torres and Dembele time yeah. and time again. And up against Carvajal and Nacho, Real Madrid just, Real Madrid just didn't really have uh, any way to stop them. Graham, and I'm glad you you pointed that one out, especially Carvajal, because another thing that I thought was so interesting that Barcelona did was not oftentimes you'll see a pacey attacker trying to kind of stay forward to push that fullback back and make them be more defensive, and then you can disrupt the other team's attacking game plan that way. But pretty pretty quickly, and I think this was an instruction, I think it was a thing that had been sort of practiced, they had dedicated training to, was that Ferran Torres would drop in. And instead of Barcelona being in their kind of customary 4-3-3 shape with the, the wingers very wide, they would be that way in the build. But on, on defense, you usually see Ferran Torres dropping in and becoming that wide midfielder in a 4-4-2, and even going further back and making it almost a back five. And I think that makes obvious sense in that you want numbers and positions to kind of help you defend and and uh, be, like be there so that you aren't getting kind of mismatched through the middle or out wide. But I think it also serves the purpose of, as you said, he is so much faster than Carvajal that it invited Carvajal forward and then left so much space to be countered. And it and it happened inside those first 10 minutes. I think he beats him once. Ferran Torres beats Carvajal by making up a good five yards. And then the next one, I think he makes up 10 yards. And at that point, I think there's a realization of, oh, I can kind of get around this guy whenever I need to. So I'm going to now sit back, make him come forward and exploit that space in behind. And Carvajal starts occupying this middle distance where he's not helping the attack, but not helping the defense. And it really was just problem after problem for Real Madrid. Ancelotti in marker uh, said, it was my fault. I can make a mistake once. 
but it won't happen twice. I'm picturing raising the eyebrow on the yeah, final line there, which is pretty cool. Um, Joe, this this was a, a you know dominant performance from Barcelona, and the start of the season seems like a long, long time ago now, doesn't it? With Barcelona up in third in the league at the moment, and uh, hot on the heels of Sevilla, who they play next weekend. In fact, is this the start of something special? Have you, are you seeing something solidify here for Barcelona, Joe? I think so, guys. We're seeing a lot of repeatable trends from this Barcelona team, right? We're seeing some consistent positioning. Taylor, you mentioned switching from the 4-3-3, which is fluid in possession, certainly, to a 4-4-2 in defense. And that's become a hallmark of this Xavi era for Barcelona. So that's a big part of this team. They'll push, usually, it's at least it was in the Classico, they push uh, Pedri up top next to Aubameyang, and they have that as the front two in the 4-4-2. And it's man-oriented, and they try to deny access into central midfield, and I think they did a pretty good job of that against Real Madrid. And they've done a good job of that at times in earlier games in the Europa League and in the league as well under Xavi. So that's one piece of it. Then with the ball, you have the fullbacks coming inside, and we didn't see Dani Alves start on the right. It was Ronald Araujo instead. But when it's Alves, you really see him as a possession hub in that half space or even further into central midfield. He comes on and plays left back for the last little bit of this game and even tucks into central midfield for a while and just hangs out there. He has so much technical quality on that side, or if it's Araujo or if it's Dest, whoever it is on that side, they can do some of those things. And you have Jordi Alba on the left who will pinch into the half space and likes to hit early crosses and I thought was dangerous doing that in possession in this game. Then you have Busquets as the six, who's done the same job more or less for it feels like an eternity now. Then you have the two eights who are athletic and making runs in behind the back line. De Jong especially is super mobile, and he loves to target the back line with some late, late arriving runs or even just straight up vertical runs in possession. He did that over the weekend. We've seen him do that in the past. The wingers staying wide. Taylor, I think it was you who mentioned that they do stay really wide. And when you have players like Ferran Torres who are Lightning fast. We see Adama Traore come off the bench in, in pretty late on in the second half after the game's already won. Those players can thrive in 1v1 situations and do thrive in those situations, can thrive as vertical threats. And then you have Aubameyang, who can drop in and link play and, and help Sergio Busquets get some extra touches by drawing defenders towards him, help Pedri or De Jong or Gavi or whoever's in those spaces get touches you have Aubameyang who could do that. He can also get in behind. He, he meaning Aubameyang, I thought was brilliant in this game and has been almost weirdly good for Barcelona. I, I wasn't sure about this signing at the time. He felt like a strange profile. Someone even that, that Xavi in the past wouldn't have been as interested in signing for previous iterations of Barcelona. But man, he was excellent between his movement in the box and that link-up play I mentioned, his speed. Even though he's, what, 32 now, he's not as fast as he used to be. But what I'm getting at here by kind of going through different pieces of the of the field and different bits and pieces of how Barcelona want to play is it feels like those pieces are meshing well right now. And that takes work to do and to figure out how to piece them together. But it really feels like the that Barcelona have struck a good balance. And I, I don't want to be over... Over, overly reactionary based off of just this one game. But the thing is, we have a sample size now for Xavi. We have, like I said earlier, 12 unbeaten, third in La Liga. They're climbing up the table. They have climbed up the table. The title is probably out of reach from this team. But I don't think it's a bad thing to have. It's clearly a good thing to have this Barcelona team building the blocks that they've built and putting them together ahead of next season, which could be really, really fun. He's he's settled on a on a profile of a team, Xavi, which I think was was very important. And and Barcelona hadn't had that for despite everything we think we know about Barcelona and everything that they've stood for in the past, that profile had got a little bit muddled in, in recent years. So I, I go through their team and there's still some areas where they could they could potentially upgrade. There's there's stories um in the Spanish press today that Masrawi 
he's going to go to Barcelona and, and that's maybe an upgrade at, at, at right back. I still have questions over uh, Eric Garcia, Gerard Piquet is fading, um, Ronald Araujo is, I think is brilliant. I think he's a natural defender um, who sometimes isn't particularly great in the ball, but I feel like you can add that to his game. It's m- maybe more difficult to add the defensive instincts. He's got the defensive instincts of a, of a really top-level centre-back. Basically, what I'm getting at is it's easier to upgrade a, a, a team if that profile is set and you can kind of methodically go position by position, whereas before it was like Barcelona didn't know what they needed and so we're, it was a scattergun approach in the transfer market and see if something sticks. And it feels like that is kind of gone now. So, Graham, is that by design, do you think? Because as you say, it was a bit scattered going. It did feel like this organisation on many fronts didn't know what it was doing and suddenly alchemy has hit them. Is that by design, do you think? I think to a certain extent with Xavi, it has been by design. He went into that January transfer window and he knew he needed wingers primarily he, he knew that his Barcelona team they needed I've spoken about it before they needed width to stretch the pitch create a funnel into the final third and so he goes and gets Adama Traore he goes and gets Ferran Torres who I know is maybe slightly more um, he's more central than Adama Traore but he can play on on those on those wide areas as we saw in, in, in the classical the one that is slightly um, I wouldn't say it was by design it was it's by accident is Aubameyang because um it felt like he was a player I'm not entirely sure Barcelona knew they knew they needed. I wrote a piece for for Sporting Life um, after the game on that. Um, I, I said he's the kind of the final piece of the puzzle, puzzle that Barcelona didn't know they needed. And um, he, I, I think he's benefiting from that space that Xavi looked at Traore and Dembele, who's who he's revitalised and is brilliant all of a sudden for Barcelona. He he looked at, he wanted them to create space for the likes of Pedri and De Jong and Busquets, and I don't think it's any coincidence that they're playing very well right now. But he maybe overlooked how that the, the amount of space that would create for a, for a centre forward with finishing instincts, and as much as like real finishing instincts, sharp finishing instincts, and Aubameyang has that. I don't think they had that in any other player before he arrived, and so they've got a little bit lucky with him. Keep in mind, they sign him after the, the transfer window closes in, in January. He signs on February 2nd, basically, because Arsenal cancelled his contract, essentially. Um, so it was only because he was available that Barcelona were able to get him. So that's been a stroke of luck. Xavi has kind of acknowledged that. He called him a, a gift that fell from the sky. But in other areas, I do think there is more logic and method to what Barcelona are doing in terms of building this team. Yeah, uh, Aubameyang it said on the commentary game that he scored the last five times he's played against Real Madrid as well, which is a pretty impressive stat, I'd say. Uh, Taylor, Real Madrid top of the table still, 12 points ahead of Barcelona, but they've played an extra game. Are they sweating at the moment? There's not, what is it, nine games to go for them and, uh, and 10 for Barcelona? Is there a scenario where they start to have a little bit of a run in and, and, a, and a very late title race, potentially? Uh- I wanted to believe that, and I was kind of surprised by the commentators saying, like, oh, yeah, this is sort of a, a coronation, they're going to be crowned, it's inevitable. I don't know if it's inevitable, but I think it would require Barcelona to basically not lose another game and for Real Madrid to have the wheels come off completely. And this is a Madrid team who, when last we talked about them, were finding a way past PSG and were this unified sort of just very powerful team that were doing really impressive things and playing as a unit and had a ton of talent, and I think they still do. So I wouldn't expect a skid that would see them get knocked out of the Champions League and lose La Liga. Maybe one happens. Likely, maybe they don't go all the way in the Champions League, but you never know with them. But I think them winning the league does feel like it's going to happen. Maybe it will end up being a little bit tighter. Maybe it will be Barcelona finishing up uh, runners-up at the end of the season. But I think overall, Madrid feeling mostly confident or as confident as you can be losing to your major rivals 4-0 at home. Yeah, 
Wild stuff, wild stuff. All right, that was the Clasico. Um, elsewhere in Spain, uh, Atletico Madrid won their fifth game in a row, 1-0 at Real Vallecano. Athletic Club got a 1-1 draw of Hatefe. Two red cards for the Vistas Hatefe, including one for an unused substitute. Wonderful, love to see it. And Sevilla, the aforementioned, who were in second place, they drew 0-0 with Real Sociedad. That's their third draw in a row. Uh, they're still in second, but they've got Barcelona creeping up behind them. And as we mentioned, Barcelona playing Sevilla next weekend. Exciting times ahead we're going to take a very quick break when we come back much more including the derby della capitale back soon looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard that right you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Let's turn our attention to Serie A, where Milan remain on top. Three points clear after a 1-0 win over Cagliari. Um, Mr. Benesser with the goal there, and a really good one it was too, Graham Ruthven. It was it was incredible finish by Benacer to to as you say effectively win this game for EC Milan. The ball's kind of slightly behind him as it's as it's laid off at the, on the edge of the box, but he manages to get his left foot over it on the volley, find the bottom corner um, from the edge of the box. Fantastic goal, one 0 for EC Milan. This is actually their their third one 0 win in the league in a row. Um, they have been more emphatic at various points of the season, but. This is what they're doing now, and they keep moving forward towards that Scudetto, so they won't care too much. Yeah, first Scudetto since 2011, this would be. But Napoli in second place at the moment. They had a 2-1 win over Udinese. Uh, Ozeman with a brace there, and Gerard Delafeu. Remember him? Consolation from him <laughs> for Udinese. Uh, Graham, I think we're slowly turning into an Ozeman, um praise podcast, because once again, he's been fantastic. He has been... So good, and so good since he's come back from injury as well. And when you watch him like this, he gets two goals in this game, as you say. Um, you can't help but wonder where Napoli might be had he not missed two, three months of, of the season because there's a very, very clear dip in their form when he's he's uh, he's out, he's sidelined. And Napoli are still in this title race, certainly still in this title race. I think they're only three points behind AC Milan at the top of Serie A. So had he been fit for the for the whole season, it uh, might might have been different. But regardless, he is he's keeping them in this, and and they're still certainly within a chance. Uh, Inter Milan in third. They had a one-one draw with Fiorentina. They've had four draws, Graham, in their last six games. Feels like they're squandering things a little bit. Yeah, I I think they're they're falling away from Scudetto Scudetto contention. Uh, this was a. a a very wasteful performance from then. Zeko had chances, Barella had chances, Sanchez had chances, Martinez has a goal disallowed, and they're made to pay for poor defending for Lucas Torreira's opening as well. So now six points off the top of Serie A. It doesn't feel like things are improving for them. They're losing momentum. Um, I'm slowly becoming of the belief that this is a two-horse race, or, or maybe even a three-horse race that doesn't involve Inter, such as uh, Juventus's form as well. Well, let's talk about them. They are one point off Inter in fourth place at the moment. They got a 2-0 win over the league whipping boys, Salonatana. Uh, Mr. Vlavic and Mr. Dybala on the score sheet, Graham. 
Yeah, and, and Vlaovic, again, a common theme uh, with Juventus in the last few weeks. He makes such a difference for them, a goal and assist in this performance. Dybala, as you say, scores. And this morning, he's the, he's the big headline at Juventus because it has emerged in various outlets that he is not going to sign that contract extension with Juventus. That has been going on, rumbling on for about two years, it seems like now, this, this whole uh, discussion about whether he's going to stay or go. It now seems very much like he is going to go and he will be a free agent this summer. Indeed. Is that Toronto FC's music? Whoa, I don't know what that sound was. <laughs> That's crazy. Excellent stuff. Soon to be soon to be seen, Joseph, on that front. But for the meantime, let's talk about the big one from Italy this weekend. Roma 3, Lazio nil in the Derby del Capitale. The King of Rome, Il Gladiatore, Francesco Totti, watching on in attendance here with uh, the, uh, the the commentary team seeming to just want him to smile at all points. Uh, they, they mentioned that Oh, it was better that he didn't. Yeah, it was better that he didn't. It was just that no smile, no overt celebration, just a, a, a look of smug satisfaction. It was <laughs> it was a perfect, perfect moment. And satisfied he should have been. Two goals from Tammy Abraham here, and a pretty darn good free kick from uh, Lorenzo Pellegrini as well. Uh, Abraham coming the first English player to score in a Rome derby since. Paul Gascoigne. Ask your parents, Joe. Uh, Roma leapfrog Lazio on the table with this one. Roma uh, uh, Roma in sixth, Lazio in seventh right now. Two points between them at the moment. Joe, I'll come to you with this one. Jose Mourinho's Roma have been hugely hit and miss this season, but it seems like they have struck alchemy in this game. Is there... We've talked about sort of things solidifying a little bit of Barcelona. Is there an element of this here or do you expect them to be incredibly wasteful in their next game, just like they usually are? I think there's, I think, I should really pause there and put as much emphasis on that word as I can. I think there's a pattern developing and some positive trends developing for Roma who have been on a good run of form, to be entirely fair to them. They haven't lost a game of any kind since February 8th and they haven't lost a league game since January 9th. They've been playing well and at least getting draws, if not wins, and they've been a, they've been getting a fair number of wins as well. I think we're seeing some some nice things out of Roma, not just in this game where I'm confident we saw some nice things, but on a more consistent basis. Now, in this game specifically, I liked a lot of what Jose Mourinho and Roma put out there on the field against a, a pretty fun and entertaining Lazio team and, and Maurizio Sarri. Roma come out in a 3-4-3 kind of shape and attack. But defensively, they're in more of a 5-2-1-2. And that distinction is important between the flat front three and, and the staggered front three with one of the attacking midfielders behind a front two. It's important because in this game, Mkhitaryan and Pellegrini, who were those two attacking midfielders flanking Tammy Abraham in possession, it meant one of them dropped deeper into midfield to mark and to shadow Lucas Leva, Lazio's number six. That man-oriented style of defending was a huge theme of this game for Roma defensively. There were pretty man-oriented through central midfield uh, on on Lazio's number eights, and they made it pretty difficult for either one of those players, especially Milinkovic-Savic, to pick up the ball and do a whole lot with it. They were aggressive stepping into midfield from the back three, the center backs there and the wing backs as well. Karsdorp on the on the right side, we saw him do that a number of different times. So Roma defensively were, were man-oriented, and Lazio, for their part, didn't ever look all that dangerous in possession. So credit to Roma for that. And also, Lazio needed more direct movement. They needed more counter movements. They needed more opportunities. They needed to create more opportunities for themselves to find space and exploit it and to to really shred Roma's man-oriented defensive system. They didn't do that. But credit to Roma for the defensive work they put in. Credit to them for attacking quickly and directly. Obviously, getting that early goal 
off of a near Olympico from Pellegrini on, yeah. on that first corner. And the ball just sort of hits off of Tammy Abraham's thigh, and he's fortunate to get a goal there. But that's what good goal scorers do. He gets one there. Roma get a second one in the 22nd minute. Abraham gets a brace in that moment. And then Pellegrini with an incredible incredible free kick. I don't think you can place the ball any better into the upper corner, just kissing the woodwork in that upper, his right-hand corner, the goalkeeper's left-hand corner. That makes it 3-0. And at that point, the game's pretty much over. Like I said, Lazio couldn't generate much with the ball. Roma weren't giving up many things with the ball. And if that's not Jose Mourinho's MO, I don't know what is. Yeah, a very, very good game for Pellegrini, as you say, Joe. As you say, nearly scoring an Impico and hitting the most perfect free kick and with the pace on it as well. Just unbelievable. But Taylor, also a rather good day for Tammy Abraham as well. Um, Really coming into his own in Jose's system, it seems. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the better seasons we've seen from him ever. Uh, 21 goals prior to the start of this game, now 23 goals in all competitions. That means he has exceeded the record. I think it was a joint record between Gabriel Batistuta and Vincenzo Montella, or Mantella, excuse me. Uh, you emphasized that one. Uh, for uh, most goals in the first season at Roma, he has now gotten past that. Tammy Abraham uh, probably could have even made it a hat trick in this game if he finishes one in the second half. That was, again, more good play uh, from him to bring it down to control it off the long pass, but just doesn't put it on frame. But yeah, I thought he was so important to what Roma did on the day and what Roma have been doing this season. Uh, there's a really good uh, article about what he's been doing uh, in The Guardian by Nicky Bandini, and it just talks about how he was recruited. Jose recruited him by talking about how much sun there is in Rome and or he could stay in the rain <laughs> right. in England. But also, I think it, it seems clear that made him a focal point and emphasized that Tammy Abraham would be the focal point of this attack, attack wouldn't be a bit player, wouldn't be somebody who sort of brought in at random points. The team would function around him and that it seems to be the way it's going which makes me wonder joe uh back to you for a moment do you find yourself surprised that this is a Mourinho team or do you see hallmarks of Mourinho in this team because there were moments when they looked like the kind of stodgy defensive uh difficult to break down Mourinho teams we've seen previously but then as you've already mentioned there were times when they were pressing and being aggressive and man marking and and it felt slightly different than Mourinho teams of the past Well, the thing is, Taylor, I think we sort of get trapped in this false memory cycle, right, at times with Mourinho. And I kind of alluded to that that trap momentarily earlier. That sounds sounds like a movie we should make again. Again, movie number two, baby. We're churning out the soccer movie ideas here, folks. Um, We've talked about in the past, we had a listener question a while back, a month or two ago, about, you know, is Jose Mourinho's time as a top-tier manager over? And I think we all agreed that the answer was probably yes. And I don't think Roma's run of form really changes my view on that. And I'd be doubtful that it changes any of our views on that. But what we talked about when we answered that question is that, yes, Jose Mourinho is known for being defensively sound and stable, but his teams also scored goals. His teams also went forward. And this Roma team has the talent to do exactly that. Mkhitaryan is still a very, very good player. Pellegrini, very strong player in the attack, very technical in tight spaces. And Tammy Abraham is a really good number nine. This team has pieces. Cristante, who I loved in midfield in this game, Brian Cristante, he had lovely moments in this one. Good ball progression, skillful with the ball at his feet, can really open up his right, uh, open up his hips and get the ball on his right foot and progress and hit a switch or do whatever with the ball at his feet. There's talent here. And I think Jose Mourinho knows how good his players are and will at times set them up to go forward and set them up to even possess a little bit to really put their mark on a game. So I don't think, Taylor, that this is a different Jose Mourinho. I just think at times, and I clearly fall into this as well, we overly simplify what Jose Mourinho teams were in order to to make them seem a bit more one-dimensional. I suspect that he will agree with you, Joe, for sure. (laughs) 
Yeah, the way the way that Abraham and Mkhitaryan and Pellegrini in this game were driving forward in, in transition reminded me a lot of when Mourinho's Spurs team were were pretty good for that short um, month or whatever it was. Right. <laughs> um, but also, but also going back to Mourinho's Real Madrid team when they had Ozil and Ronaldo and um, when Ronaldo could actually move and uh, Benzema and Higuain and they they did that a lot where they're kind of like attacking in quick transition as a, as a unit making the most of the of the space and kind of the opposition half. Um, and so I see similarities to some of his teams. But I also agree that this um, Roma team probably play a little differently to Chelsea, his, his first Chelsea team, for example, or even his, his second Chelsea team. I, I do think Mourinho, there has been a larger spectrum of his of his kind of uh, coaching ideas and methods than we sometimes give him credit for. So, Graham, is that to say that this potentially is a false dawn if you compare it to the good the period at Tottenham? Um, do we have to start being nice to Josie again? I suppose is the question. Um, no, I don't like that world. No, that's not a world that... <laughs> I, I think mean, with Roma... Well, let's the, let's the say, difficult... he, Graham, how impressive it was that he actually got his defenders to not be calamitous and forget how to play soccer for a few minutes, which is something they do <laughs> most games. And that's impressive in itself. So let's give him credit there. Yeah, for a full, for a full 90 minutes, uh, they didn't do anything <laughs> stupid. Congratulations, Josie. But I, I do think with Roma, the, the question with them is what what is their ceiling as a club because they're they're fifth in Serie A at the moment which is an improvement on last season obviously there's still some way to go in this season but they finished seventh last season Um, as Joe was saying they are in a good run of form at the moment Um, so fifth would be an improvement but are they going to they're not going to break into that top four this season certainly so then you're looking at next season I, I still think in terms of resources they're quite a bit behind those those four teams at the top of Serie A they do have I really like that attacking unit that I mentioned of Pellegrini and Abraham and Mkhitaryan and then you've got Zaniolo as well to, to come in I really really like that but it, I do wonder how far he can take this 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 Roma team he can he can still be a good coach Jose Mourinho and at the moment he I think he is doing some good things with this Roma team I think he's got a lot of his key players on side so Pellegrini is playing his best football ever this season. Abraham has never been better than he is right now. He's even got the fans on side. Just so you know, there's a moment after uh, Roma scored their third goal to make it 3-0 and Roma are passing it about at the back or in midfield and the fans are giving it the Olays and Mourinho kind of comes out and tells them to calm down and everyone everyone listens to him. So you always think when Mourinho has been successful at clubs, he does tend to have that unity, not just from the players on the pitch, but everyone around the club. He does kind of have that at, at Roma at the moment so maybe they can go a little bit higher but I'd be surprised if everyone's a Scudetto as, as Roma manager I'm just not entirely convinced that um, as a club they're kind of capable of that at the moment and to, to, to be clear he does have a lot more pull in Italy than he does perhaps in England these days as well he still is highly lauded I mean been to, been to a few games in his presence and it, the Inter Milan one in particular where both sets of fans were basically bowing to him um, for obvious reasons so uh, yeah it, it's, it's interesting to see how that one's shaking out before we finish this game anyone have anything nice to say about Lazio I mean they didn't have a Mussolini in their squad for this one <laughs> that's, that's good right anything oh, else geez. I, um, I'm struggling. <laughs> I really am. I thought I thought this was a a strange approach from them. They they just gave Roma far too much space. And uh, yeah, my thoughts about 
Lazio as a club, maybe I'll leave those out. <laughs> yeah, uh, I would. I would probably echo Graham's thoughts on Lazio as a club. Uh, in this game, the one thing I would note: uh, the commentators in this game and the commentator, I think it was Steve McManaman or McMahon. I always forget which one it is. Uh, doing that, that, yes, doing El Clasico. Uh, two games uh, this weekend in which you could hear the color commentator uh, exhale with frustration <laughs> at uh, errant <laughs> passes. You could hear it uh, from Madrid. A lava passes one straight out of bounds, and in this game, a couple different times, you could hear that like. Ugh. Like it was just like there's nothing happening. As you said, Ryan, when it was three 0 it was like, well, that's the game over before halftime. And I think the the commentators may be hoping it would be a bit more electrifying and it was anything but in the second half. Indeed. Roma three, Lazio Neil. We're gonna park that one there. We're gonna park Italy there and take a very, very short break. When we come back, Premier League, FA Cup, and much more. Lots of rivalries to talk about in this here soccer weekend. Back soon. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Let's turn our attentions to the Football Association Cup. Uh, we have our semi-finals set right now. Chelsea are into the FA Cup semi-finals. They're going to play Crystal Palace. Chelsea getting a 2-0 win at the Riverside Stadium against Middlesbrough. Uh, you'll remember, listener, Chelsea requested this game be played behind closed doors for sporting integrity reasons. Sporting Lol. integrity. Chelsea. Yeah. Um, Lukaku and Ziyech with the goals here. Ziyech's goal, very nice indeed. If you haven't seen that one, I would recommend you check it out. Uh, Chelsea fans, the ones who were there singing Champions of Europe, we know who we are. Um, around 700 Chelsea fans making a trip to the northeast for that one. Uh, that's fans who bought tickets before sanctions were placed upon their club. Uh, Nottingham Forest, what, uh, nil Liverpool one, I should say. Uh, they're going to face Liverpool, are going to face Man City in the semi final. Adigo Jota, Diogo Jota, late goal, excuse me. Uh, but a pretty spirited performance from Forrest, Graham, I thought here. Yeah, I thought this was a, 
a trickier match for Liverpool than many people anticipated, maybe even Liverpool. I think they, they were probably surprised by the competitiveness of Forrest. I thought Van Dijk and Konate had a, had a good game, um, but that was because they had they had things to do. They were they were pressed hard. Forrest gave this a real a real go. Could have had a, a penalty kick late on, um, and I think this performance just kind of underlined the the progress they've made under Cooper this season. They've still got promotion to go for in the Championship, um, and. Personally, I reckon they'd be a good addition to the Premier League. It's it feels like it's about time we had Leeds come back to the Premier League as one of these sleeping giants. And personally, it feels like it's time for us. We're back. Let's get them back in the Premier League. I love nineties nostalgia, Graham. So I'm all for that one. Um, <laughs> Southampton one, Man City four. As I mentioned, Man City going to be facing Liverpool in the semis. Three goals in the last half hour for City, who are wearing their terrible third kit for no particular reason. Um, if you're going to watch a goal there, Phil Foden's uh, third, uh, the third goal for City was a banger. Palace four, Everton nil. Uh, Frank Lampard, Graham, after the game says, "Have you got the? I'm going to say cojones to play." He used a different word. He's a bit unhappy. Yeah, I, I'm not sure it's down to cojones, Frank, <laughs> that your team uh, is not doing so well. This this was another disastrous day for Everton, um, but a glorious one for Palace. And 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 frankly, the the contrast between the between the two teams I thought was really damning for Everton. Palace previously maybe um, making a lot of the same mistakes that Everton would make in terms of spending a lot of money on castoffs from big clubs and not really having a an identity and playing stodgy compact football I guess Palace would argue that that kept them in the Premier League but now under Vieira they're really building something there's an identity there they've got exciting young players Michael Elise, Eberechi Eze, Conor Gallagher, Mateta, Zaha I know he's not particularly young um, but they're just they're so exciting so good to watch then you contrast that to Everton who just have none of those things at all and now, now they're out of the FA Cup they're sliding towards relegation as well yeah, really concerning times for Everton, but Palace are into the only their second FA Cup semi-final in 25 years. They, they're also shooting for a top-half finish, so plenty to be excited about at Selhurst Park. Yay for AFC Richmond. Um, Premier League, <laughs> Taylor Rockwell, let's rewind to Friday night. Wolves 2, Leeds 3. I'm going to let you have the floor. I think we can all agree that Jesse Marsh is the greatest manager of all time. I think that's probably the obvious takeaway from this game and nothing else. Definitely not that yeah. Raul Jimenez getting a questionable red card uh, brought things uh, back to sort of balance for Leeds. But that said, they do find a way through. They do fight back. It's another late win, dramatic win for Leeds. And I wanted to shout out Luke Ayling in particular, who was involved in various ways in all three goals for Leeds. He has, I think, the initial shot that saved, his rebound is saved, and then Jack Harrison scores uh, for the first goal. Uh, he has a big switch to uh, Dan James, whose header then, or lifted shot, then hits the post, and then from the scramble, Rodrigo finishes, it's 2-2, and then Ailing gets the winner uh, in the 90-plus-1 minute, and uh, I think had the most touches in the box of any Leeds player, which is an interesting thing to say about a defender I think he also had the most passes for Leeds in the final third so an instrumental player for Leeds I think also just an instrumental and influential figure even if his goal scoring celebrations leave something to be desired couldn't quite get the full Robbie Keane in that one but overall a great win for Leeds I loved it too uh, <laughs> yeah uh, and I think a great win for Jesse Marsh as well yes right have you ever heard a player apologize for a celebration in a post-match interview before I think that might have been a first 
I have now, and it was, and I think it was, it was the apology was due. I, I will say, I think there's interference from his teammates. I think I, uh, Ireland teammates and the the many many boyhood clubs of Robbie Keane, his teammates <laughs> knew, uh, get out of his way, let him do his thing, and then you mob him afterwards. Luke Ayling tried to create some space, I think was not able to, and his somersault really suffered. He blamed that on old age, but I, I have to think that Luke Ayling can probably pull that one off if he had a little bit of time and space. Bless him. Um, <laughs> Aston Villa nil, Arsenal won. Bukayo Saka getting the goal there. A good test for Arsenal's progress was this. They lost on their last two visits to Villa Park. We had a London derby with Tottenham coming out 3-1 winners over West Ham. Hyungmin Son getting a brace there. Spurs now in fifth. Three points off Arsenal in fourth. Uh, two protesters were removed from the pitch before they managed to attach themselves to the goal, Graham. Did you catch this one? Yeah, that's a that's a weird trend going on it with is. these protesters. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's peculiar. I mean, the the best one was obviously the Goodison Park one, who yeah. I I read on Twitter. He's since been punished with uh, Everton season ticket. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I don't know what's going on there. I don't know what other further thoughts I have on that. I'll go to the game itself. Tottenham, Tottenham West Ham, a uh, bit of a make or break fixture for both of these teams in terms of their top four chances. Spurs are just about hanging in there, but I reckon it's probably over for West Ham now. It just felt like after that Europa League win over um, Sevilla on Thursday night which was incredible and they've got a genuine chance I guess of qualifying through the for the Champions League through the Europa League um, it just felt like they didn't have enough in the tank and Kane and Son gave them all sorts of problems as they, they tend to do that high line was a bit of a mystery for me for West Ham it just played into Spurs hands uh, a little bit and just one further talking point quickly to go back to the to the Arsenal win the, the, why why are we having this discussion every time Arsenal win a game over their celebrations? It's fit, it's so it's so po faced. Can we can we maybe just let people enjoy themselves and feel happiness no. when they achieve something, even if it's something small? Goodness me! I, I mean, it does tend to come from talk sport, which maybe tells you a lot. But I I, I I just don't get it. Like, let people celebrate things. It's it's a weird weird trend. Are you telling people to be positive, Graham? Yes, but well, I'm saying other people wow. to be positive. Wow, <laughs> we, I think we just made a breakthrough. Oh my goodness! I, I, well, we would have, except for how uncomfortable Graham was even agreeing that he might be remotely positive. There was still a like, uh, yes, is that how you do it? Uh, it was great, good stuff, Graham. To be to clarify, I'm not saying I'm going to be positive, but uh -huh. other people are allowed to be positive. As as my point, that was, I believe, I Graham's second bullet point of his wedding uh, vows. I believe. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Which you didn't even read out, just sort of handed them over. Yeah. On the piece <laughs> My vows weren't that long. That's right. Um, and as for the protester thing with the attaching themselves to the goal, I think I have a solution for this, guys. We just get rid of the goals um, and we'll do it like we used to do in the park when I was a kid. So either two bicycles yep. uh, either side <laughs> to make a goal or a pile of sweaters um, on either yeah. side to, to make the goal post. Graham, I'm, cones, I'm assuming you're familiar cones. with this. Or some coach. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The bicycles one is, I hadn't thought of the bicycles one. We used to do that a lot, which yeah. was really. Um, it was really inconvenient when you would hit the quote-unquote post and the, the bounce could go anywhere if yeah. it hits a pedal or or whatever. But yeah, or traffic cones. We'd steal traffic cones. We'd have to get bike line technology, I think, if we um, oh, if we did institute that. So maybe there's a whole a mess that we're inviting ourselves into there. Um, let's go to the Bundesliga real quick to round up. Bayern Munich 4, Union Berlin nil. A brace from Bobby Lewandowski because, of course, Kingsley Coman got a really good goal <laughs> from distance there. Um, Ricardo Pepe was an unused substitute in Stuttgart 3, Augsburg 2. Uh, Hertha Berlin ended, yeah, <laughs> they ended a nine-game winless run, did Hertha Berlin with a 3-0 win over Hoffenheim. They're finally at the bottom two. 
Their new coach, Taylor, Felix Magat, missing the game due to COVID-19. He's a favorite of yours, right? Uh, I, I think that maybe is a Graham favorite. Uh, I, I have fewer uh, strong feelings about Felix one way or the other, though I do like the name Felix, and I think we should bring that one back more often. Good name for a cat. That's what I'd say. Um, Real Life, <laughs> RB Leipzig held nil-nil against Eintracht Frankfurt, and Cologne drew 1-1 with Borussia Dortmund. Joe, ask, ask your parents about that one uh, as well. <laughs> Will do. <laughs> as, as for most things on this podcast, I apologize, Joe. Um, Borussia Dortmund have now uh, allowed that gap at the top of the Bundesliga to open up to six points. Let's come to you, Joseph, for MLS Roundup. Why don't we start with little old Charlotte FC All against... Right, Ryan. Uh, Supporter Shield holders, <laughs> New England Revolution. What was the score there, Joe? Do you remember? Oh, I, Ryan, I don't quite re- Maybe like 3-1 Charlotte, something in that range. This was, t- to be genuine for a second, a really exciting day for Charlotte, right? Their second ever home game. It's still a really good crowd there in the lower bowl. First ever win, first ever home goal, first ever goal, period. Lots of lots of milestones in this game. And I think Charlotte should be proud of a lot of what they did on the field. Now, I, I do want to give a rather large caveat in this particular moment. The Revs just came off of CCL. They lost and utterly collapsed in Mexico. No bueno from them. And they have a pretty rotated lineup in this one. No Adam Buxa, no Gustavo Bo. That's two of their three highest profile attackers. Carles Hill did start in this game, so there's that. Uh, the, the Revs didn't look all that good, but credit to Charlotte for what they did, right? They come out in a yet another shape under Miguel Angel Ramirez, who has used a back five, a back four, and, and now he uses a back four with a diamond midfield. So you've got this 4-4-2 diamond that looks a, a decent amount like the Philadelphia Union. You have Bronico as the six. You have Franco and Bender as the wide number eight. You had Alcivar as the, the 10, getting his first start, I believe, of the season. And then you had Daniel Rios and, and Swiderski up top. And Svidersky is the real storyline from this game from a Charlotte perspective. He gets a brace in this one looking like the designated player that Charlotte want and, and really desperately need him to be. The first goal is an absolute banger from outside the box, and the second one's still a nice finish. That one comes in the second half. There's a lot to like here from Charlotte in terms of what they do with the ball, in terms of their ability to adapt into different shapes. I will say one concern of mine is defensively. They only give up one goal in this game, but between this game and the the home game against the Galaxy and some other moments for Charlotte so far this season, they seem not quite fully ready defensively. They don't look, and this is understandable, right? New players, new coach, new league, all that stuff. But they, they don't look as sound defensively as I think they'll need to be as the season goes on. They allow a lot of ball progression. They give up chances, and they did that in this game. The scoreline could have looked different for New England. But still, lots of things to be positive about if you're a Charlotte fan. Ryan, lots of things for you to be positive about. I think this is a good and, and was a good weekend for Charlotte FC. That, that crowd as well, that's super encouraging for Charlotte. And yeah. also... The the VR, uh, I don't know what you want to call them, tarpaulins that are not tarpaulins that mm. are on the seat. Those were those were cool. Like I've never seen th- them do that before. With the when the goal scores, like graphics go round and everything. I thought I don't know how it looks in the stadium because obviously they're not in the stadium, but on TV that. I thought that was cool. Yeah, uh, I think they've got some MLS's back technology there, Graham. I think it comes from that stable, but it did look very cool. You're quite right there. Um, the opening goal, by the way, uh, Joe from Stwerderski, a 17-pass move. 10 of 11 players touched it. So that is um, that is uh, Mr. Ramirez's style on show there, I would yep. suggest. In the battle of the two teams who are going to finish below Charlotte, Cincinnati 3 into Miami 1 in this one, Joe. 
Yeah, Inter Miami are so 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 bad, and I I really feel for their fans at the moment. Cincinnati, though, for their part, are playing good, competent soccer, which is a, a massive compliment. I'm not even trying to be like silly here or or ridiculous about this. I mean, that's a huge step for them. Pat Noonan is doing the Lord's work in Cincinnati right now. Right, three goals for them in this game, coming off of an away win against Orlando City last week. Alec Khan is playing well on goal. Brendan Vasquez is maybe. He's not the story of this weekend, but one of these stories of this weekend, getting a couple of goals in this one, just playing in general really, really well. Cincinnati in that 3-4-1-2 shape, pressing, giving Miami all sorts of trouble with that high press. They were borderline dominant in this game, which is not saying a whole lot against Inter-Miami. We need to see it again against different teams. But man, a good start to the year for Cincinnati after a horrible first game. I believe that was their first game against Austin FC, where they led in five goals. Uh, on Sunday night, LAFC 3, Vancouver 1, the aforementioned game which I was lucky enough to attend. LAFC still top the pile in the West. Uh, Ryan Hollingshead getting a brace in that one. Carlos Vela on the score sheet too. He's very good at the soccer, to say that. <laughs> He's rather good, isn't he, Joe? Yeah, yeah. No, good. Left foot, good. Carlos Vela, good. LAFC, really good so far under Steve Terundolo. Teams will bunker against them. Teams will sit deep and make their lives miserable. But so far... The results have been pretty darn good. And like you said, Ryan, top of the West with alongside, although LAFC have them on goal difference, RSL, who are also on 10 points in the Western Conference. They're second. RSL and Pablo Mastroeni have beaten Seattle, New England, and Nashville so far this season. Those, I think, are and definitely were supposed to be three of the best teams in Major League Soccer. And RSL, without a lot of their key players, have just dispatched all of them so far this season. I am far from sold on RSL as a product, and I, I don't know that they'll be able to keep this up. But man, what an incredible start for them, even if they can't keep it up, to have this cushion that they've given themselves in the Western Conference. To be where they are after the schedule they've had through four is super-duper impressive. Uh, perhaps the most bonkers game of the weekend, Atlanta 3, Club de Foot Montreal 3. <laughs> uh, a 90th-minute equaliser for Atlanta from Brooks Lennon, a Beckham-esque free kick, that's what I'm going to call it, and a red card for Dom Dwyer in this one as well. Did you catch this one, Joe? Yeah, this one was off the rails. Atlanta had no business getting back in this game. They had no business getting a point at home. Disastrous defending on Georgi Mihalovic's opening goal for Montreal that made it 1-1 after Joseph Martinez had scored in the sixth minute. And then Montreal just dominate the game, completely dominate the game, play right through Atlanta. They're on the ball. Kone is making great runs out of central midfield. Leo Torres is cutting in from, from the right wing onto his left foot. Kyoto's getting in behind. Kamal Miller's driving forward from the back line. This looked like exactly what Wilfred Nance wants to see from his Montreal team. And he got it for about 75 minutes, 85 minutes. And then Thiago Almada, who's a big storyline from this week as well, getting some more minutes for Atlanta United. He comes off the bench and doesn't do a whole lot until right around the 85th minute where he scores an absolute worldie, going from right foot to left foot to, to make a couple of Montreal defenders jump, then getting the ball back on his right foot and curling it into the far post. If you guys haven't seen this, Taylor and Graham and, and Ryan, you have to watch it. It's one of the goals of the weekend anywhere in the world. Almada scores to make it 3-2. Montreal are still holding on. And then Brooks Lennon scores a one-in-a-million free kick that is Beckham-esque in the 92nd minute to rescue a point for Atlanta United. An undeserved point, certainly. But man, super fun game. You can see what Montreal is trying to do. They're still struggling. They only have one point so far in MLS play after crashing out of CCL as well. But man, crashing out might be a bit, a, a bit strong. But still, I like a lot of what they're doing in Atlanta. The talent is there and it's starting to get healthy and get on the field. Maybe there's positive things there. I still think Gonzalo Pineda has a lot of work to do. All right. Um, anything else for MLS Roundup? Joe, perhaps maybe Dallas, who uh, built on their win over Nashville last weekend. Jesus Ferreira scoring a hat trick in a 4-1 win for FC Dallas. 
He has been awesome this season, as have Dallas in general. Nico Estevez has worked some magic. Paxton Pomacos playing centrally, which is huge. Ferreira has been a real force as a nine. Alan Velasco gets an assist in this game off of one of the best team goals. That, that Almada goal was one of the best individual goals of the weekend anywhere in the world. I'd wager that FC Dallas team goal for Ferreira's first, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, in that 4-1 win, was one of the best overall team goals in the world this weekend. The ball moves all over the field from, from central out to the left side. It goes up the left wing. Velasco crosses it in. Paul Ariola dummies it to Ferreira, who's made a great run after flicking the ball to, to be involved in buildup in that clip as well. Dallas just dominated Portland, and they've been phenomenal so far this season. They're probably my favorite team to watch in MLS right now between all of the American ties and, and just literally the soccer they're playing under Nico Estevez. They deserve a ton of credit for the start they've had. All right. Uh, just before we head off into the sunset, a few other games to quickly cover. A lot of rivalries happening happening around the world, including Taylor Rockwell, De Classica in Holland. IX3, Feyenoord 2. IX top of the league after this one. Sebastian Hilaire and Dusan Tadic among the goals. Yeah, and this was uh, a really, really fun game from start to finish, even when Feyenoord in the second half were very much uh, doing some housery, some dark hearts, trying to kind of slow this game and frustrate Ajax, but I think credit to Ajax and credit to Eric Ten Hag especially for some of the adjustments made. He brings on uh, Klaassen at halftime, then takes off Daily Blind, brings on Taliafico. I think at least one, if not two, of Ajax's uh, goals in the second half come down that left side from Taliafico creating. Uh, then there's a great free kick from Dusan Tadic. That would be the uh, the equalizer that I got to give credit to the commentators for saying, we know we can aim this one at the back post. I wouldn't be surprised if he tries to put it in far side netting. And he did just that. So a great goal from him. And I think some really smart adjustments from Ten Hag to sort of take the game to Feyenoord, make them uncomfortable. And by the end, it was very much a dominant performance from Ajax, especially so from Anthony, who got himself a goal and then got himself uh, a red card, got uh, a booking for scoring the winner, took his shirt off there. Then very late in the game, if you all haven't seen this, gets gets injured off the pitch, like right by the benches, crawls back onto the pitch and then falls back over. Then I think gets back up and is thrown to the ground by Tadic, his teammate, because they're (laughs) trying to kill off more time. Both of them end up getting yellow cards. That would be Anthony's second and he is sent off. Doesn't go down the tunnel. He waits, returns, celebrates with his teammates, gets his jersey stolen by an adult in the crowd. That happened. The jersey has since been returned and is going to be auctioned off. Overall, a very dramatic day from start to finish uh, in the Eredivisie. Yeah, and, and especially because before kickoff there was a fire oh, I forgot in about the that. stand as well. And it was <laughs> and and it was like they everyone talking about it was just sort of like, oh you know, yeah, it's a little bit of pyrotechnics, oh the flares seem to have gotten out of control. And then at one point there's a shot of uh, Andre Onana in goal for Ajax just turning around and looking at it. And it looks like the entire stand behind him is engulfed in flames. And I think it's just sort of the way the angle was. They do end up getting extinguished. I think while the game is is ongoing, so they weren't too worried about it. But still, it was a, a very smoky atmosphere and a little bit of uh, chaos to start the game on and off the pitch. Yeah, Ajax bringing the heat in more ways than one. Um, down in South America and Argentina, some interesting stuff happening in the stands there as well between Rosario and Newell's old boys. Uh, the game was delayed after, and I quote, a number of grenades damaged the pitch. Uh, <laughs> some sort of explosive devices were thrown onto the field, which literally blew holes in the playing surface. Her boy, uh, Newell's won that one, 1-0. One uh, we also had the 256 Super Classico between River Plate and Boca Juniors. Boca win. 1-0 away from home in that one. Uh, Sebastian Villa getting the goal. 
And last but not least, Graham Ruthven. We had the derby, which I think we used to call El Cachico in League R, Monaco against PSG. Monaco yeah. 3, PSG 0. PSG's third loss in four games. They're still pretty comfortably top of the table, but if you're Maurizio Pochettino right now, are you a bit worried for your future? Uh, yes, I think so. It, it would be it would be cruel if, uh, with the title pretty much in the bag, despite this result and despite re- recent results, if, if he was sacked before the end of the season because he famously has never won a league title as a manager, <laughs> didn't win it last season. Um, and so if he was sacked now, he still technically would not have won a, a league title. This PSG team have just completely checked out of, of this season. Um, that's I think two league undefeats in a row. They lose to to Nice before losing to uh, to, to to Real Madrid um, in, in the Champions League. And yeah, I, I I just don't. It feels like they need a complete rebuild. PSG. I think that might happen with Leonardo seemingly going out the door now. Pochettino, you would say, probably is is going to go in the summer. So there's going to be a complete new front office at that club. Mbappe's probably going to Real Madrid as well. So. There is the opportunity for, for replenishment and for this to be the start of something better. But right now, this this team is just... And that club, frankly, is is a mess. You hate to see it. Jot. Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> if you say so. <laughs> All right, guys. That was the Weekend Review. Thank you so much, Lister, for joining us on this one. Graham Rudman, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. Taylor Rockwell, a legend as always. <laughs> as are you, my friend. Congrats on the marathon. Uh, thank you very much. I'm going to go lie down, but for now, Joe Lowry, thank you very much for your time too, sir. Right back at you. We'll be back on the feed soon, listener, but for now, bye!